0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Everything in Christianity is about Christ. That's actually what sets Christianity apart. You know that in the last century, there have been almost infinite attempts to take all of the major world religions, and the minor ones, and blend them together to suggest that they are all basically the same thing in different garb. So we've seen the rise in universities of the study of comparative religion, which compares points of religion that seem the same, and the conclusion of most people is that religion then, in whatever form it comes, is basically the same thing, Christianity or Islam or Hinduism. What a local Hindu told me is the perspective of most people in the West today, that life is a large mountain with God at the top, and every religion is just a road on a different side of the mountain leading up to the top. After all, if you think of all the major world religions or systems of belief, even atheism could fit in this, don't all of them ultimately deal with morality? Aren't they all just ways of telling us as people to be good, to be on our best behavior, to do the right things, to treat other people fairly? You find examples of the golden rule in many religions. Aren't all religions in some sense an attempt to give us hope in the face of suffering and death? Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all trace their origins to Abraham even. If you know any Muslims, you know that they have a respect for Isa, that's Jesus. They consider him a prophet, have that in common. And of course, at least half of our holy book we share with the Jews. We'd consider it the Old Testament. They would call it their Tanakh. With all these similarities, is Christianity just one religion among many in a marketplace of religions, just in different form? The answer is no. No. Well, then what is it that sets Christianity apart? It's Christ. Christianity. It's Christ that sets Christianity apart from every other system of belief. Does Christianity teach morals? Absolutely it does. But Christianity is not about morality. Christianity is about Christ, And the morality that we hold to is what? Not us just growing in morality. It's us growing in similarity to Christ. Does Christianity teach about hope? Absolutely it does. But it's not just hope for its own sake. It's not an opiate of the masses. It's not just a way to deal with or cope with suffering. Our hope is on the basis of Christ and His finished work for us. And what we're hoping for is an eternity with Christ. Christianity is about Christ. No other world religion puts this much emphasis, really all its emphasis, on one person. Of course, within Islam, you do have Muhammad, but he does not serve the same purpose as Christ does for us. We worship Christ. Christ is God. Christ is everything. The Jews respect Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. But we don't just respect Christ. Christ is our very life. That's what sets Christianity apart. It is a person. It is a personal system of belief, if you will. Everything, and there are many things within Christianity, but everything terminates on the person of Christ. We worship Him. We serve Him. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our God. He's our friend. He's our helper. He's everything we need. He is our source of life. He is our hope for the future. If you need something, it's in Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the manna come down from heaven. He is the door. He is our entrance to worshiping the Father. He is our intercessor. He prays for us. He has guaranteed our salvation. He is our forgiveness. He is our righteousness no other religion that takes one person and says that about him. That's what sets Christianity apart. And even within Christianity, this is a good test because, of course, there's all kinds of Christianities. This is a good test. You are entering into heresy or dangerous waters whenever your emphasis, even as a Christian, shifts away from Christ. If your emphasis, yourself or within a body of believers, shifts away from Christ onto morality, which is a part of Christianity, but if that's where your emphasis falls, now you trip right into legalism. Or if your emphasis shifts away from Christ into the freedom that you enjoy as a Christian, then you fall right into licentiousness. If your emphasis shifts from Christ to some other teacher, let's say Joseph Smith, you're a Mormon. If your emphasis shifts away from Christ to tradition, Roman Catholic or Amish, if your emphasis shifts away from Christ onto social activism, you may fall into theological liberalism and deny the gospel. If your emphasis shifts away from Christ onto conservative politics, you may slip right into a sort of dangerous Christian nationalism in a bad sense or into just a kind of cultural Christianity. You're a Christian because of the way you vote. If your emphasis moves away from Christ anywhere, it's dangerous. And if this morning you yourself feel deflated, discouraged, D anything, it's probably because you're not emphasizing Christ. And He is the emphasis of your life and of Christianity and of all things. And I'm grateful, as we all should be, that the text we come to in Galatians today has this one singular purpose to push our attention on to Christ, away from everything else, in this case, the Old Testament law, we'll see that, but on to Christ. You may remember from our study here in Galatians chapter 3 that Paul has been fighting against the Judaizers. They were people who did not emphasize Christ. They appreciated Christ. They believed in faith in Christ. Hooray. But they emphasized the law of Moses. And they were telling Gentiles who were becoming Christians, if you really want to be a Christian, great, believe in Christ, but that's not the emphasis. You've got to keep the law of Moses. So, Paul has been saying, Abraham didn't. (laughs) Paul has been arguing, it's not the emphasis. It's not an ultimate purpose. It had a temporary purpose. And then the response was, then why do we have a law if it's not to keep it and be righteous? And he's been answering that now since verse 19. Why then the law? And today, he continues to explain by telling us the law has this purpose, just like everything else, to push us to Christ. Let's see this in Galatians 3. We're going to start here in verse 23. Now, before faith, that means Christ in the incarnation, now before faith came, we, the Jews were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith, Jesus, would be revealed. So then, the law, here was its function, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith, that is Jesus, has come, We're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Last week, Paul summarized the purpose, or one of three purposes, as we saw, of the law of Moses. You see it there in verse 22. But the scripture, we could say the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Meaning, if you remember, yes, the law is one good expression of the morality of God. It is righteousness. It's good. It's not bad. The Judaizers, therefore, felt, well, if we keep God's will, we're good with God. True. But the problem is you can't keep God's will. The law is good. It's too good. That was Paul's response. Paul has been arguing that God did not give the law... So that the world would simply have one more religion touting morality, telling you, do this and get to paradise. That is not why the law was given. The law was given, says Paul, to show you how bad you are. It's like in chapter 3 of this Paul Miller book out here. It says, you don't know how bad you are until you try to be good. That's why the law is there, telling you try to be good, and when you try, you fail. You fail. It is a standard outside of yourself. So instead of us just going, well, I'm not as bad as the next guy, maybe that's true. Are you as good as the law? That's God's will. No, you are not. Then you better find a righteousness somewhere else. And where will you find it? In Christ. That is the purpose of the law. That's what Paul has been saying. So what is the law about? The Judaizers said the law is about righteousness. The law is about us being good enough to get to heaven. And Paul says, no, the law is about Christ. It's to push you to Christ. And similarly, Christianity itself, does it have rules? Yeah? Is it about rules? No, the rules are about Christ. Everything is about Christ. To make this point in our text, what Paul does is he splits history sort of in half and he talks right there at the beginning of before faith came. That means before Jesus came, the object of our faith. What was the function of the law back then when God's people, the Jews, were really under it? Why was it there? And then he turns and focuses on after faith came. So, what is the function of the law for us now? So, we're going to consider this text in those two ways, before faith and after faith, in keeping with the text. So let's do that and see what Paul has to say about the law and its emphasis on Christ, not itself. You can see right where our passage begins, now before faith came. So that's where we're starting. Faith, as I said, you can consider that Christ. He is the object of our faith here, before he came into the world. Paul, notice, is speaking of a we, we. And sometimes when Paul says we, he means like we all us Christians, Jews, Gentiles, everybody. But in this case, clearly what Paul means is we who are Jewish, just the Jewish believers. That's all he's talking about here. So not us Gentiles. So he's saying we Jews, and he is talking about a time before faith came. He's talking about the period of time from Moses, where the law was given, to Jesus when faith came. That period of time... The Jewish people were God's chosen people. And they were, during that period of time, under the law. Even Christ, you remember, was born as a Jew under the law. So there's a real sense that they really were under the law. Here's Paul saying we're not under the law. But at that period of time, even those who believed were in some sense under the law. They still had to keep the strictures of the law, they still had to do animal sacrifices. So if you were a believer, At that period of time, Jewish believer, that period of time, you had to do animal sacrifices. You couldn't say, that's dirty business. I'm just going to opt out. You had to do it. You couldn't sow your field with two kinds of seed. That was part of the law. So you're under it and that you're obligated. That is, remember, an expression of God's will in that situation. So if you were in that situation, you'd be keeping the law. Of course, you would not have been at that time justified by the law. No one ever was. But that would be an expression of God's will at that time. So you'd be justified like Abraham by faith. But then when you said, now how do I live my life? You would look at the Old Testament law, which you would have been under. There would be festivals, you'd avoid pork, etc. Now with that little preface, notice here what he says about that period of time. He says that the Jewish people at that time were, quote, held captive. And then he uses another word here, quote, Imprisoned. Is the law a prison? Is the law bad? No. The law is good. The law is too good. That's been Paul's point all along. You know that if you just read the Old Testament, because God gave his people a law, and during that period of time, how'd that go for them? Did they keep that law? The Old Testament has them breaking the law over and over and then being sent into exile to Assyria in the north, Babylon from the south. So, the very history of the Jewish people shows that the law was too good. Paul is not saying the law was bad, but that it was too good. This is how Peter put it when some Judaizers came to him. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers the Jewish people, nor we have been able to bear. It's a yoke. It's too heavy. It's too good. The Judaizers were touting the law, saying it's so good, keep it and be righteous. And Paul and the apostles were saying it's so good, you can't keep it to be righteous. The Jewish people never did it. You can't do it. We can't do it. So when the Judaizers said, hey, let's just take the law that we Jews use to get righteous and let's stick it on the Gentiles. Paul says, it didn't even work for us. Not even we could keep it. Peter says, we're going to put that yoke on Gentiles too. The Judaizers really were walking around with this law, this good law, as if it was a source of freedom. And you see Psalm 119, the law is good. It is wonderful. They would have read Psalm 119 like we did. And see, wow, the law is good. And we agree with them about that. It is so good. It's a reflection of God's moral will. But then they did this that we do not do. They went around and said, okay, keep it so you can get to heaven. Keep it so you can be righteous. Keep it and there will be freedom. But really, for the Judaizers, there were shackles upon their wrists. You could think of the Jewish people as coming out of Egypt removing the physical shackles that had enslaved them for four centuries. But once they got to Mount Sinai, there was a sense in which invisible shackles gripped them. They were imprisoned under the law. How? Not because it was bad, but because it was too much for them. Too much for them to keep. Now, the Judaizers who said, oh, no, you can keep it, it's fine. They didn't keep it. They thought they kept it, they didn't keep it. Look what Paul says in Romans 2 to people just like the Judaizers. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law for righteousness, and boast in God, and know His will, because that's what the law is, and approve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Meaning... You're walking around with the law like, hey, keep this and get righteous. You don't even keep it yourself. You can't. No one can. Is there anyone in here who has not violated, don't lie? Anybody? Anybody. No. No. The last chapter of Galatians, Paul will actually say, quote, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So before faith came, even when God's people were under the law, it was a kind of bondage. It was imprisoned. They were waiting, we'll see, but they were imprisoned. It was a heavy yoke. It was too much for them, which was the whole point of it. Now, this bondage, before we move on, I should note, stands as a warning for everyone, even here today, even though we're not in that period of time, but you have it in your Old Testament For a reason, because we look back at that period of time, the people of Israel trying to seek righteousness by keeping the law. What they really did is they took their eyes off of God and put it on morality, on the law. The law itself became God to them. It's like they worshiped the Bible. They had their Bible, and it's like they worshiped that instead of God. That was Jesus' rebuke of the leadership. You take traditions, and then you trump the truth of Scripture The Old Testament. We are similar in that all of us are tempted at all times, all times, like the Jewish people at that time, to focus upon our performance, to take our eyes off of God and off of Christ, his provision of righteousness for us, and to subtly shift it over to whatever our law is the law of Christ, even our own morality, your own standards of what makes up a good Christian. And so when you have a week, where you have a quiet time streak, I mean, seven days in a row, you were in your quiet time, and they were rich, rich times, and you had very positive interactions with other people, and you made a meal for someone, and you even almost shared the gospel with somebody, opened up a spiritual conversation, you did not explode every day on your children, you had a pretty decent week, and how do you feel about that? Pretty good pretty good before God? I'm keeping the law. I'm doing all right. Wow, God, you're lucky to have me. You know, we don't say that, but that is the attitude that the Judaizers had, and even though we're not in that period of time, it's the attitude that always tempts us to feel like if we're doing decently well, your kids are pretty well-behaved, you're coming to church fairly regularly, and these are all good things, aren't they? Just like the law is then you rely upon it for your relationship with God. In other words, your emphasis falls there. Your emphasis shifts from Christ and a free salvation onto, how did I do this week? And if that's where your emphasis is, I don't have to tell you. You're pretty depressed, yeah? Or you're pretty proud because you brought the standard lower. It's not where our emphasis is meant to be. If your emphasis day and night and day and night and day and night is just on how good you're doing as a Christian, as good as that is, as important as that is, you'll be exhausted. There's no life in that. It's all supposed to be about Christ, and even how you live flows out of Christ. But the Judaizers made Christ a point on the side, and the main course was the law. It could be satisfying at first, but just like for them, it's a bondage. You can never parent well enough, you can never love your spouse well enough, you can never love others well enough, you can never resist temptation well enough to be good in God's sight. And if you try, this is exactly how you'll feel, if God's merciful, held captive, imprisoned. Paul says, that was the state of the Jewish people before faith Christ came. Now, as we continue to consider the purpose of the law, not to justify, He gives us this picture now of what he calls a guardian. If the law wasn't meant to justify because we can't keep it, what's its purpose? And he says here, the law was a guardian. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law was not about the law. And the law was not mainly about morality. The law was about Christ to push people to Christ, to prepare the Jewish people for Christ. Now, this idea of guardian requires some explanation. At Paul's day, some of the wealthier families, what we'd call patrician families, some of the wealthier families in their household, they would have a person set aside, we'll call them a pedagogue, from the Greek word. So they had a pedagogue, and the pedagogue was often a slave in the household, but was an adult who was responsible for one or more of the children in the household. The pedagogue was not necessarily responsible for for teaching the children, but for making sure the children got taught. Could enforce discipline, would take the children to school or to a tutor and back from the tutor, would make sure the child's doing what the child needs to do, going where the child needs to go, and actually developed a reputation in the ancient world for being strict and a stickler. I don't know they really were, but that's kind of the reputation they developed. That was a pedagogue, member of the household to help the children while they're growing up. And that, Paul says, is what the law was for the Jewish people before Jesus came. At that time, the Jewish people, even the believers, were like little children. They weren't grown up yet in the whole history of redemption. They were God's people, but they weren't grown up yet, and so God gave them the law, not to save them, not to make them children, but just because they are children to help them to go where they need to go, do what they need to do, to prepare them so that when they reach adulthood, they're ready. Ready for what? Ready for Christ. This is the whole point of the law. We're going to see more about this next week at the beginning of chapter 4, so I won't say a ton about it, but let me just emphasize again this point. Christianity in every part is about Christ. That's the point. So, the law, the Judaizers say the law is about righteousness. No. The law is a pedagogue that's just teaching the Jewish people to prepare them for what everything's really about. When faith came, Christ it's about Christ's coming. He says, quote, In order that we might be justified, not by doing the law, it pushes us away from it to be justified by faith in Christ. So, in the law, for example, there were animal sacrifices, which you've noticed. We're not doing that now, which is good. But in that period of time before Christ came, the Jewish people were required under the law to perform various animal sacrifices. Why? Why? We know that animals never saved anyone. So, why do you kill animals? Some of the Greeks used to think, well, it was feeding the gods. We know that's not true. So, why are we killing so many animals? Why does the river outside Jerusalem run red every Passover? Why is there so much death? Why is there so much blood? And why is it so closely associated to our sins? Here's why Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years as a Jewish person of seeing animals die in relation to your sin, then when John the Baptist makes that statement pointing to Jesus, you're ready. You should be, should be ready. In the law, God's people, for another example, were called to be separate from Gentile nations. Kind of the issue here, Jews and Gentiles. In the law, that was a requirement. They couldn't intermarry with the Gentile nations. They were given various things that made them distinct from the Gentiles. Why? Because God hates Gentiles? We're Gentiles. God doesn't hate us. Why? It was the pedagogue helping the child understand That God wants his people to be holy and set apart for him like an unblemished bride. And the vile practices of the nations who don't know God can't have a part here. Because Christ is jealous for his bride. It was to get us ready to receive that. The Jewish people ready for Christ to come and have a precious people set apart for his own possession. It was just part of the teaching. In the law, there's a morality. Sure. Why? To show God's people that they can't live up to the morality of God. That's why it's there. To show you you can't do that. Why is that so important? So when Christ shows up offering a different method of righteousness, namely faith in him, they're ready. So we've tried to be righteous through the law a long time now, and all we got was exile. So when Christ says, believe in me and I'll give you righteousness, they're ready. They're ready. These are all lessons that come from a guardian, guardian of the law, and the guardian is just there not to make children, the guardian is there to teach the children, and before Christ came, that was the status of the Jewish people. That's why they were under the law, not to make them righteous, but to prepare them for Christ. Now, we've seen then that function of the law before faith came, and now we need to move and see what has changed now that Christ has come, now that faith has come. So we saw before faith, let's look at after faith, after Christ comes. How do we think of the law now? This is the time period we live in. So this is immediately applicable to us. Begin here in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons, full-grown sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now when he says that faith has come, we know there was already faith before this period of time because he's just been laboring to demonstrate that Abraham himself had faith long before Jesus came into the world. So when he says faith has come, he doesn't mean there was no faith before Jesus appeared in the world. But it's kind of like what John says in the prologue to his gospel that the law came through Moses. That was the emphasis there. But grace and truth came through Jesus. Not that there wasn't grace and truth before, but it became so clear when Christ came. The same is true of justification by faith. The Old Testament was like a dimly lit room, and God's people, including Abraham, could see by straining the eyes, yes, faith in the seed, who is Christ, who is coming. But the details weren't all clear yet. For us, there's no excuse. The details are clear now. Christ has come, faith has come. The grace of God has been manifested, We know the details. We know who Christ is. We know what he came to do and what he did. We know he died on the cross. We know what prophecies he fulfilled. We know what he was accomplishing on the cross. We know that our only hope of salvation is faith in him. And we've got letter after letter of Paul to assure us that that's very much true. We've got the details. So faith has come. It's very clear now. That's what he's saying. Not that there wasn't faith before, but it's come. Now that faith has come, Paul says, here's what's happened. God's people have grown up. They've grown up. That's the point here. We're not just little children, like the Jewish people were under a guardian, being prepared for Christ to come. He's come, we're grown up. You see this first when he says, "'For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith.'" And then in verse 29, "'And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring.'" heirs according to promise. This is another point that we're going to see more clearly next week. But what I want to show you right now is that Paul is using this picture of children who were younger in the house under the pedagogue, and now that Christ has come, God's people are grown up. It means they don't need a pedagogue if you're grown up. That's the point here if you're grown up, what need is there for a pedagogue? If the law was just there to prepare God's people for the time when Christ would come, and now Christ has come, why would you turn back to the law? If the law was just a shadow that's being cast so that you look over to what's casting it and it's Christ, now that you're looking at Christ, why would you look back at the shadow? Which is what the Judaizers were doing. We are heirs. We are children as God's people. We are full grown. We don't, what we do now is we read the Old Testament and it's instructive in hindsight of pointing us toward Christ, but we don't have to act it out. We don't have to do the animal sacrifices. That period of our life as God's people is done, which is good. We are not under the law. Why would we sacrifice an animal when the ultimate sacrifice has already been made for us? You know that the book of Hebrews elaborates on this point actually in several of its chapters and we don't have time to address all of them today but let me just read you an excerpt from Hebrews chapter 10 explaining this exact same concept that the law was just a pedagogue. The author in Hebrews 10 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never By the same sacrifices of animals that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Can't do it because it never was meant to do it. Just a shadow. Otherwise, if those animal sacrifices were just in and of themselves enough to atone for sin, otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, why is there year after year after year after year more animals die? This is why in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Why do we need to be reminded of sins every year as God's people? To prepare us for the one who will take away those sins? Then he says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but, that's the shadow, but, has, he says, but a shadow of the good things to come. The law is just there to prepare us for Christ. The law is a shadow that is cast by Christ. The sacrificial system, it's a shadow that Christ is casting. So now that Christ has come, we look at Him. And we look at His one sacrifice, which is the substance. It's what the sacrifices were all about. And the morality of the Old Testament which is a good expression of God's will. What is it about? It is to point us to Christ because we can't live up to the standard. We need Him. And now that He's come and we're looking at Him, go and sow two kinds of seed in your field. We don't need that. We've grown up. It's not been negated or nullified. We're just not under it because Christ has fulfilled it all. The perfect man. And we are united to Him. The Judaizers treated the law as if it was the thing casting the shadow. It's just the shadow. That's Paul's point. Now that the thing casting the shadow is here, we don't need the shadow. You don't need to focus on that. It's like when you're watching a trailer for a movie. You're excited it's going to come out. Can't wait. Okay, watch the trailer. This is exciting. But now that the movie's come out and it's on your shelf, you don't go back and watch the trailer over and over. You got the whole movie. That's what Paul's saying. Why are you going back to the law? You've got the real thing here. You've got Christ. That's what the law was all about. And that leads us into now our final point in this text, which is the most applicable. It's a fitting kind of application at the end here. And it's here in verses 27 and 28. If all that we've said is true, then, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, those binaries he presents here, where you have Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, in the law, those mattered a lot. You had to be aware of what your status was. Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? That mattered a lot under the law. Are you a male or you a female? It mattered a lot. Dictated a lot of what you did under the law. What's your status? Are you slave? Or are you free? That mattered a lot. There were laws about that. Lots of laws about that. So those were things that the pedagogue used to prepare for the coming of Christ. But now that Christ has come, what Paul is saying, his main point here is, only one thing matters anymore, and it is Christ. Your identity, which mattered so much in the Old Testament law. Are you a Jew? That mattered so much in the Old Testament law. He says, that doesn't matter so much now. You know what matters? Are you Christ's? Christ is the substance. Christ has come faith in Christ has come. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you united to Christ? It's the only thing that matters. You all, and he's talking here, you got Jews and Gentiles in the church. It used to really matter. There used to be a huge wall in between them. He says, the wall fell down in Christ. And all that matters now is that all of you are one because you're in Christ, because you've believed in him. The law was a kind of barrier, temporary, but a sort of barrier with all the regulations that kept the Gentiles away from the Jews is part of the instruction there. But now we are not under the law. Gentiles and Jews come together because all that matters now is, are you in Christ? That's what matters. Under the, matter, under the law, these other things mattered no longer. Now, of course, it has gone without saying for many centuries, but it doesn't go without saying anymore. When he says there's no male and female, he's not talking about gender fluidity here. That's clear from all the rest of the New Testament. And that was a comment that we didn't have to make until just really recently in history. But the idea of no male and female, it's clear that Paul doesn't mean to remove every possible distinction that there is. Paul, as a Jewish person, when he would think of gender fluidity, really would have thought more of things like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, he was a Jewish person. That was in his scriptures before the law. It was not something removed, so God, Paul knew God made people male and female. This is a text that's been used, again, only very recently to try to defend the idea of gender fluidity. We know that's not true even if you just look at Paul and that's it because Paul, for example, clearly distinguished roles of husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5 in marriage. They're different. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul makes very clear that only men are supposed to be in the leadership in a church. So Paul's not saying in an absolute sense, I don't see any male or female. (laughs) It's not true. Paul even was aware that he was a Jew, and he practiced some of Judaism himself, some of the law even. He didn't have to, but he did. So it's not like he didn't know there was ethnicity. It's not like he didn't know there was gender. Even to slaves in the ancient world, Paul gave specific commands for them. So he's not eliminating all those distinctions. But what he's simply saying is your primary identity. You know what matters so much more than all of that? your unity in Christ, you being in Christ. Look at verse 27. That's what he's focused on here. He's using first baptism as a picture. He's In baptism, what happens? You've died to your old self. You're raised with Christ, a new start, and you're in Christ now. It's not what happens when you're physically baptized, but that's what baptism represents, that that's happened in you. Even the immersion in water, in some sense, is like a picture of just being immersed in Christ. And then he says, You've put on Christ. It's another picture of putting on clothes. That's how united to Christ you are. It's like he's everywhere around you, whether in the water, he's everywhere. He's closed. He's everywhere. You are in Christ. That's what matters now. That's the emphasis. So right now, you may be one of any number of other things. You're either a male or a female. You're either fairly rich relative to society or fairly poor. You either have a really good paying job and are well respected or you don't. You either are a sort of popular person or you're not. You're either maybe athletic or you're academic. You may be fun. You might be serious. You might be white collar. You might be blue collar. You might be black. You might be white. You might be a mom. You might be a dad. You're married. You're single. And those are the things we focus on. And he says, stop focusing on that. Focus on Christ. And compared to being in Christ, that stuff, 10,000 years, you don't care. You're in Christ. In conclusion, is that how you think about yourself? When you stop and think about yourself, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Is it, I'm just not a very good Christian. Oh man, my prayer life, we're doing a quarterly focus on prayer. It's just like a quarter of guilt. I'm just not good at praying. I never have been. I get distracted. Is that the first thing that comes in your mind? is it, ah, I should share the gospel more. I'm not doing that enough. Not like so-and-so who does it all the time. Ah, is that the first thing that comes into your mind? Ah, I'm not good at reading. Here's recommending books. I can't even read the Bible. I'm struggling with that. Is that the first thing? Are those good things? Yeah, you should do those things, the good things. But is that the first thing that defines you? Is how good or not good you're doing as a Christian? No, no, no. This is the first thing that defines you. More than anything else, you are, our text says, Christ, apostrophe S. You are Christ's. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. You abide in Christ. Christ abides in you. You're united to the life of Christ. You draw your nutrient from Him. When you do what is right, it is not you. It is Christ who is in you doing what is right. When you die, you will die in the arms of Christ and be carried by Christ on the basis of Christ's sacrifice into an eternal paradise with Christ. Your whole life is Christ. So everything else you're worried about, whether that's your male, female, whatever it might be, Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that much compared to the fact that you are in Christ. You are Christ's. And may God help us with all the distractions we have this week to remember that that is true of us.